Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Piles, recorded in our writer's studio just above the bookshop at Kilometre Zero in Paris. If you enjoy these conversations, there are a few different ways you can support us. First of all, you can leave a rating right now in whatever podcast app you're using. The more ratings we get, the more likely it is that people will discover us. It only takes a few seconds and can really help spread the word. You can also buy books, gifts and apparel from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you'll find our popular Year of Reading subscription, 12 books handpicked by our dedicated booksellers, shipped to you or a loved one wherever they are in the world. Finally, you can become a friend of Shakespeare and Company by joining the association we set up to get us through a difficult few years. Membership gives you access to exclusive online content, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Find out more at friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. I'll be back at the end, but until then, sit back and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. As a bookseller, recommending a novel, it can sometimes be useful to compare it to other books. That, however, is impossible for Checkout 19 by Claire Louise Bennett, because it's quite unlike anything I've ever read. It's a book about reading and writing and the physical presence and power of books, but it's also about class and the burning need many of us have felt to escape the life to which society tries to condemn us, tries to condemn women perhaps most of all. It's written with the astonishing combination of literary sophistication and lexical bawdiness that won Bennett so many fans and plaudits when her debut pond was released. I'm so happy to get the chance to speak with Claire Louise Bennett about it today. Claire Louise, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Hello, Adam. Hello, Claire Louise. Um, I guess where I'd like to begin with um, Checkout 19 is um, on the subject of memory or when I was thinking of how I would express this question, it was... I was unsure whether to say memory or remembering, because um, it struck me that uh, a lot of the the tone of the book is uh, the narrator, which may or may not be you. We'll come on to that uh, maybe later, but is sort of is, is reaching back into into her past and kind of unearthing um, these events. Some of them very distant, some of them perhaps um, not quite so distant. And this struck me as sort of, in a sense, of quite a different perspective to Pond, which in a way felt kind of more more immediate. Um, so I think where I'd like to begin is on the, the writing process of that. Was it something that you felt was sort of like a, a fundamental shift in perspective as a writer, sort of going from the sort of the more immediate, more sort of uh, present feel of Pond to something a little a little more distant with Checkout 19? So I think with um, with Pond, there was like a, a deliberate move towards focusing on the immediate and what was to hand. Um, and that was as a way of sort of extricating myself from academia I'd been studying for a number of years um, and I I wanted to kind of get out of that of that way of um, maybe thinking um, and so I stopped studying and but my brain was still very much functioning in that in that kind of very analytic intellectual, sort of way um which was hindering me creatively mm-hmm. 
like in the long term, it was really beneficial, the stuff that I was looking at uh, during my my PhD and a lot of the concepts and, and uh, things relating to, say, selfhood and stuff and representations of selfhood definitely fed into. But in terms of actually writing, producing words and sentences, um, I needed I needed to unravel a little bit. So focusing on the immediate was really useful in that in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, when it, I guess it came time for me to kind of put this book together. Um, a number of years had gone had gone by, and I suppose I was at that time in my life when. I started to have a really distinct sense of having a past mm-hmm. up until that point, And certainly around the time I was writing Pond, my life felt all of a piece still, whereas now it, it definitely doesn't. Um, I am aware of um, my past in a way where it almost seems like a different lifetime. Mm-hmm. So it made me kind of curious about um, past events Um and circumstances that some that I'd maybe overly um, uh, prioritized and then other things that maybe I hadn't really acknowledged very, very much. So like, for example, I've lived in Ireland for just over 20 years now. And obviously from time to time, I get asked why why I came here um and I've always I maybe guess answered that slightly either facetiously or evasively um but most of the time the question the I answer the question by saying well it I I came here really to get to get away from from England um which is which is accurate but it doesn't really explain very much um and it, I guess it took me a while to really, well, I didn't really think about it too much myself because, like I said, it's just in that way, isn't it, where you, you just carry on with, with living. You're just getting mm-hmm. on with it then and, and the um, repercussions of that decision. So it's only recently that I've reflected on it and then I think to myself, well, really, I know I know why I left. It's because... Um, I didn't really have much available to me really in mm. in the UK, in England, um, in terms of what I might do with my life. I, I didn't see that I had very many options, mm-hmm. that's what I'm saying, I suppose. Um, I At that point, I think just before I left the UK, I'd been working in a, a warehouse, um, WH Smith warehouse, actually, mm-hmm. books. <laughs> um, I was doing uh, night shifts and I kind of, I preferred working in, in warehouses to be honest than office work um, just because I guess you kind of move around a bit more. I really don't like sitting still for too long. Um, so I suppose, yeah, things were kind of presenting themselves to me um, more fully mm-hmm. than they than they had done for a while I mean I've got a very bad memory actually I've got a really bad memory but I always see and the way that this this um 
kind of started off, you know, the very, uh, I think it's the first section, the silly business, mm-hmm. and it's told in the third person plural. Mm. Um, well, that I wrote that, um, well, that began anyway, very many years ago. And the first line of the original piece was, we remember our first memory, don't we? Yes, mm. yes, yes, we do. But that's not the same thing as the first thing that happened, is it? No, no, it isn't. We don't remember what the first thing that happened is, do we? No, we don't. So it's acknowledging that there is that discrepancy between what we remember and then what, the first things that, that go on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also in that piece, what I was allowing for was the possibility that at some point in my life, I might have an early earlier memory. So mm-hmm. my first memory that I have now won't always be my first memory. I hope not. I hope I managed to get an earlier one <laughs> so that my first memory kind of and so I allow for I allow for the fact hopefully that in my in my coming years I'll I'll be able to remember maybe more and more. Um so I, yeah, I was I was kind of interested in in that idea too, the kind of the shift mm-hmm. in terrain of it. There's um there's a lot in what you've just said that I'd like to um to explore, but it's interesting that you say you um you don't have a very good memory. Um because another writer who I've interviewed who said the same thing uh was Carlo Vekanausgaard. Oh, and um obviously your work in Checkout 19 and his work in his My Struggle series are very different books and very different projects. Um but as a reader in a curious kind of way they had in at least one respect a similar effect on me which was to plunge me back into my own memories to kind of I really felt like in sort of excavating your memories your past you were sort of allowing me to do the same and I was trying to figure out what it might be about your work and what it might be about Knausgaard's work that produces this similar effect and I was wondering if it had something to do with this kind of acknowledgement of the the sort of the fluidity and the sort of um, fluidity of memory and the sort of disintegration of of memories because often when you read um, memoir or autobiography and I you know check out 19 could not be classified really as that in the sort of the strictest sense of the term everything is presented as very concrete and very clear and often with a quite a defined arc or quite a defined journey um whereas what we what we find in checkout 19 i mean there's a moment for where you say you're talking about your jacket on one of the chairs and you say sometimes i see a green jacket and sometimes it's a purple one and i think there's something in that yeah i guess that kind of acknowledgement that produced this effect within me um, and so what I think, what I'd like to know in, in that respect is, was that, did you have to fight against that sort of um, expectation of solidity and coherence and fact while excavating these memories? Were you were you perhaps tempted to kind of concretize things where, whereas to you perhaps they weren't so concrete? That's really interesting. Um, there's a few things to think about there. No, I knew I, I wasn't. Um, 
I wasn't attempting to write something like a memoir for a range of, of reasons. I know, I know you haven't directly asked me that, but um, we're in that area, so I, mm. I'll address it. Um, as you, as you, as you say, a memoir um, presents life in uh, quite a particular kind of a way. Um, it feels the way it's been, the way it's written about. It, it feels like there's an inevitability to how things went, in a sense. One thing mm-hmm. leading to another, leading to another, as if it couldn't have been any other way to a to a degree. Um, and there is a kind of almost like you say a, a definitive take on on the on the significance and, and meaning of certain events um which i can't uh take on because i i don't feel that certainty um so it doesn't feel it doesn't feel appropriate to work in that mode um and also i think it does set up a different reading experience mm-hmm. so i was interested in what what you had to say about how uh my book and Kanazgards invite this sort of participation. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that I very much wanted to happen. And I don't think that necessarily that's something that happens when you read memoir. I mean, I certainly, I enjoy memoir, but um, I, some of the enjoyment comes to a degree from being quite passive. I find it quite a passive experience. And sometimes I do want to just be kind of passive. A lot of the time when I'm reading, it's a very active kind of uh, mm-hmm. engagement because of the books I tend to go towards. But every now and again, it's just kind of nice just to have this, you know, life play out in front of you. But it feels very contrived, weirdly mm. enough, you know, when I read a memoir like that. I, I don't, it doesn't feel quite um, convincing to me because I just haven't experienced, my experience of life hasn't um, been been that way at all. Well, I think one of the... Um... One of the areas where it had this uh, evocative effect most most strongly for me um, was the sections when uh, you're writing about school. Um, and one thing that really stood out to me uh, that set it apart from a lot of writing about school is that it it didn't feel as if school was a time of infinite possibility to you. I think often in literature, possibly because a lot of writing, a lot of literature comes from people who went to either private or public schools where um, sort of opportunity and everything is really stressed, or, you know, maybe maybe from very from state schools, but very sort of middle class state schools where where that sort of uh, some of the let's say the rhetoric of um, mm. of opportunity was then realized in the in the future life. And one thing in Checkout 19 that really resonated with me was that sense of the, I don't know, almost not exactly the futility of the school experience, but almost like it was a joke being played on the kids. Like, you know, the teachers had their, the teachers had the, you know, were going through the motions. They had the things they said about your work experience or your career plan. But, they didn't really believe it for the kids they were teaching and the kids didn't really believe it um, mm. about themselves. 
And that struck me as something I don't think I've ever come across represented in a book before. And yet it was something that yeah, resonated enormously with me. Oh, well, that's really interesting, too. Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't I didn't. So just to say, like, um, like, I didn't write it all from scratch. Uh, it came together last year during um, pretty much the first lockdown, which was pretty full on. And I was working with material um, that and some of it had existed for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um I didn't know as I was writing it up or working with that material that the school thing was going to become what it did. Like things just really, uh, I don't know, they just sort of exploded and became so much more. I had these scrappy bits, you know, and I'd had these scrappy bits for quite a long time. And I was in London a couple of years ago trying to sort of work them out and put them together and it just wasn't working. Um, so there, I don't know what it was, but there was something about just being at home and being stuck at home last year um, with these with these things, with these pieces, um, that I was just able to, I don't know, really I get into the, I don't know what it was. Anyway, another, th- another thing that's always very galvanizing, of course, is I guess I had some... Uh, feeling of anger like some anger Mm. had been kind of building up in me as well in the meantime um like i'd read that that piece in the guardian about um working class students being bullied um in universities Mm. right so we're talking about adults here bullying other adults because of the way their voice sounds Mm -hmm. talking about privileged adults picking on making other people feel bad because even talk about it now, I can feel myself getting angry. Mm. So there was this anger. Um, and that that was apparent then as when I was writing. And mm. it's it's fu- it's funny too, because that's the point, isn't it? When you grow up in that kind of environment, the things that make you angry, you quickly make it in some way humorous as well. Uh-huh. That's the way of dealing with stuff, right? You, yeah, all, yeah. you almost immediately make it into something like you said a bit of a joke or just something it's always kind of laced with some kind of humor because what else are you going to do do with it except you know go mad because mm-hmm. it can be quite overwhelming that feeling of um injustice or inequality um so that really that really got to me reading reading that um and there were there were numerous but they never really seemed to occupy that much space though in the media and i find that Mm -hmm. really irritating you know you'll get this odd story kind of coming up every now and again in the back pages and then nothing doesn't seem to get any traction and i just think well these are are clearly the same people who are running Mm -hmm. you know the country effectively and this is this is their mindset you know Mm -hmm. um so yeah so that that was um that was definitely an uh yeah an aspect um and a, and a kind of, I get, yeah, and I guess when I was reading those pieces, I was reminded again of my own experiences and and how naive I'd been because I had thought for a while um, when I was at school that if I did knuckle down, I would do well, you know, mm-hmm. and I would be able to do something interesting with my life and that yeah. opportunities would open up. 
I, I kind of did believe that, um, uh, you know, to a, to a degree because I knew I didn't want to stay where I was and I didn't want to stay, um, within that, um, within that, uh, town or that place or that I knew, I, I knew that I didn't, I just didn't feel particularly, um, comfortable there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of, but it was impossible. And like that, it, you know, it did feel kind of pointless because, you know, cl- classes were just so unruly a lot of the time. They were just bubbling about so much, you know, and after a while it does get a bit like, oh, for God, it's, God, it's not, it's annoying after a while. Uh-huh. It's just not that yeah. much fucking fun, um, <laughs> you know, and you just think, well, I just would rather be on my own and, and, than 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 this because this is kind of irritating. So I don't know whether my um, my tendency towards so, you know solid solitude sort of occurred then, mm-hmm. but it, I I did like just doing projects on my own and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, so then and then there's that awakening, isn't there? Because she goes off and she does A levels and she sort of realizes that really actually, yeah, the schooling that she's received so far has been pretty flimsy. Uh-huh. And uh, the kids from other schools, because it was a college, right? I mean, we didn't have six form. <laughs> like, my school did not have six form. Like, that tells you everything, right? <laughs> You're 16, you leave school, you get a job. That, that's it for you. Do you know what I mean? There was no six form. We went to, I went to a college in town, which was a completely different thing. And I was the only one from my school at that college. There was nobody else. I think a few mm-hmm. people went off and did BTECs maybe or something like that in the, in what was called New College. Um, but yeah, it was quickly apparent that um, I was really quite behind in terms of reading and stuff. Mm-hmm. So that was an interesting adjustment to have to make. Um, and then I had to make another one when I went, went to London and that wasn't so much to do with education because by that time I had read a lot of books and I was a bit more confident of my ability, um, if you like, sort of intellectually, academically, mm-hmm. but it was uh, a, an awakening on a kind of a socio-economic level. Mm-hmm. I just saw for the first time rich people yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. and I'd not, I'd not really seen you know, in those numbers, um, and, and just so, so obviously. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I had this mouth like that. Um, and it was, yeah, it was pretty shocking, really. I felt quite angry about that as well. Um, it's, um <laughs> you know. I'm conscious of the fact that because a lot of our listeners are in the UK and a lot of what you'll be saying will be very familiar to them. But I've also realised through speaking with people around the world that in, in some way, there's something quite mysterious about the the class system uh, in in Britain, in perhaps okay. in England more specifically. Um, and you know, I know uh, you know other countries have their own iterations of it, and it's not it's by no means um, you know I'm, I'm not sure a classless society exists anywhere. But yeah. I think the sort of the uh, I can imagine sort of. For example, listeners in the United States, where often there's, you know, there's the myth of the the American dream, you go out and get it, like would be potentially quite baffled by the the, the sort of the situation that you have just sort of outlined, which, which is this sort of sense of being almost a kind of the a prisoner of the class in which you're mm-hmm. born, mm-hmm. Um, and which is not to say that there is not an escape and indeed your escape 
in many ways was leaving the country, mine too. Um, but I think there's there's something very, um, yeah, very particular and particularly English about this, um, yeah, this very stratified, very kind of fixed class system in a way, and this kind of, and then the, and then the attitudes that it provokes, depending on which level of society you're born into. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, it's so entrenched. It's so entrenched, and I don't even think you know. People are even sort of consciously, necessarily consciously discriminating against people or, or bringing assumptions, but it happens. It happens all the time. I think the minute someone opens their mouth, they're they're being interpreted and and and, and placed um, absolutely, and and there's a whole set of assumptions that that come with it, um, and it's interesting because in Checkout Nineteen. Um, because that, I mean, that, and that reflects, I suppose, some of the ambiguity, right? Because I don't really know much about, uh, the working class world, you know, as it's, as it's typically represented, Mm -hmm. right? So I didn't grow up on a council estate. Um, I don't know, you know, none of my family were on benefits or unemployed or we were, we had quite a lot of money. We had a Volvo, you know, we had, my parents wore barber jackets in the winter when we went for walks up Marlborough Forest. Do you know what you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like from the outside, in fact, yeah, we had all the sorts of tropes and of a middle-class life, right? But having those things, it doesn't make you, Mm -hmm. it doesn't make you middle-class. And that's what you kind of, realize as well it's not just about having um the right sort of cultural signifiers or economic signifiers um what you kind of realize is and i think that's the i think that's the most frustrating thing is what it really is about is connections and networks Mm -hmm. and those kinds of things you can have all the Volvos you want and you can live in a six bedroom house or whatever, but what they have, the currency that they have are these connections mm-hmm. that have been there for however long. Um, and it's, and it's very hard. It's very hard to get on without, without those. Wearing another girl's knickers wasn't something you just got on with. It sort of took over, like keeping a secret, and changed the texture of the day entirely. It was difficult to know what to do with them once you got home and could sprint upstairs to your bedroom immediately and open a drawer full of knickers and put on a spotless pair of your own. Some girls didn't want them back after, and other girls thought that if you didn't give them back it was because you wanted to keep them, and if you wanted to hang on to a pair of another girl's knickers that meant you were scavvy or peculiar. It was quite a complicated business. Added to which, I never really liked my mother knowing I'd worn another girl's knickers. And if I put them in the laundry basket, she'd notice them right away and want to know where they'd come from. My mother was very particular about where things came from and didn't like it very much if something or other just turned up out of nowhere. Where on earth have these come from? She'd exclaim, holding up a pair of Garfield patterned pants, for example, eye level at arm's length between the tips of her fingers. 
My mother didn't like other people's things getting in with our things. And I thought there must be a good reason why she didn't, so I became very conscious of our things and of other people's things, and I was constantly amazed at the way other people didn't seem to be conscious of their things at all. They were very slapdash with their things, I couldn't help but notice, whereas it had been instilled in me to be very careful with mine. This disparity between how things were treated did mean that other people's things, which were frequently chucked about any old how, had a completely different aura from those things that belonged to me. Their things seemed cheaper, more disposable, and my things seemed rarer and much more valuable, practically irreplaceable, and I was distractingly terrified of losing or ruining them. Having said that, I had a terrible habit of dapping things down, of taking things off and leaving them behind in the grass, for example. Easy calm, easy go, as they say. As my father often said in the hallway, as I went on up the stairs, with that soupçon of chipper sarcasm that typically permeates the many pithy observations of the proletariat. Easy come, easy go, eh? My alleged couldn't-care-less attitude made this self-starting man turgid with disapprobation, while his native substance lit up and rejoiced at how little importance I placed upon having this, that, or the other. A conflict simmered on and on in my father, on the one hand, he was rightly proud of the progress he'd made in his chosen trade and of the top-drawer material comforts he was able to consistently provide his family with because of it. Yet, on the other hand, he also felt like a bit of a mug for going along with it all, working and buying and working and buying, working harder and buying better. It was all a big game, after all, wasn't it? He could see that. And it wasn't a game he was destined to come out on top of. He knew that, he knew that, and the conflict roiled away in him, on and on. It sometimes happened, of course, that somebody might have something even nicer than something of mine. I seldom experienced any jealousy about it, because in a matter of weeks, whatever it was they had would seem perfectly average. Whereas where my things were concerned, the more time that passed, the more precious they became. My mother, I began to realise, did in fact have an eye for the finer things in life and made it her business to choose exceptionally nice things for us all. I wouldn't say she was at all materialistic or avaricious, yet having nice things was important to her. Possibly because when my parents got married and I was born, the two events happening in quick succession, they didn't have any things, nothing at all, and as far as I know nobody gave them anything. Nothing they wanted in any case. They started absolutely from scratch. And so naturally it became important to have things. It helps make unexpected circumstances seem planned and even desirable. Things hold life in place. Like pebbles on a blanket at the beach, they stop it from drifting away or flying up in your face. Having nice things makes you feel like you're doing a good job and shuts everybody else up. There's nothing anybody can say to you so long as you have nice things all around you. They can't touch you. And as time went on, there were more and more nice things, lovely things. A white cotton jacket with striped lapels and big square pockets. And come September, a smart navy coat with two rows of small buttons and a rounded velvet collar. Party dresses with smooth sashes and oxblood loafers and argyle socks and a rosebud pitcher and bowl and croissants on Sundays and banana shampoo and maiden hair ferns and holidays in the Canary Islands 
and gold-plated bathroom taps and pavlova and 501s and flower fairies and wayfarers and feast ice creams and slashinger tennis rackets and made-to-measure Roman blinds and Betty Boop sweatshirts and barber jackets and pineapple leggings and Wedgwood china and stag mahogany and Laura Ashley wallpaper and valley racers and bally shoes and Clinique and Volvo and Thornton's Easter eggs and Cher's Fred fish and chips. I had the same bed cover as Helena Bonham Carter. I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw the photograph in the Sunday Times magazine. She was sat on her bed with her immense hair all loose and the rosebud cover on her duvet was exactly the same as the rosebud cover on the duvet that I was at that very moment sitting on myself. I would have liked to have torn the page out and slipped it into my rosebud pillowcase that was exactly the same as her rosebud pillowcase. It was intoxicating to look at a photograph of Helena Bonham Carter sitting on a bed that looked just like mine. It encouraged me to feel there wasn't a great deal of difference between us. As I gazed at her romantic mass of twinkling curls, I could feel my own sullen slew of rat's tails augmenting magnificently. Next to my bedroom was the bathroom, and one day not long before I left home to go to university in London, a duck appeared on the bathroom wall just above the toilet system. I couldn't believe my eyes. Where had it come from? My mother had painted it. What do you think, she said. Does it look daft? It came all of a sudden, all at once, and brought with it a terrible wind. Soon after it arrived, all the nice things my parents had worked so hard to gather and had arranged so beautifully were blown right off the life they'd held so firmly in place, were wrapped up in newspaper and put into separate boxes. And some of those boxes went who knows where, and some of them ended up in my father's mother's loft, and nobody can remember what's inside any of them. All this time later I find myself holding on to certain things I don't even like that much for no other reason than that I have had them for so long. A somewhat tautological reason. On it goes. There's a couple of books that have come out recently um, by young women writers in the UK. Three Rooms by Joe Hamius, is it? Mm -hmm. And um, Anna Glendinning. An experiment oh, yeah. in leisure, and um, they're both absolutely brilliant books. That sort of detail how I think both both of them are about women, young women who have graduated graduated from Cambridge, and like that, they don't have, you know, it, it, it's not a pathway to anything, mm -hmm. um, because I think maybe one of them got there on a scholarship or something like that, and um, so actually after they gra graduate. One is uh, renting a sofa in a flat. I'm not quite sure what the other one's up to. But it's it's such a heartbreaking read, mm -hmm. you know? They're really bright, sharp women, and yet they're just clutching at, at hardly... And there's nothing there. They're not valued. Mm -hmm. They're not even seen, you know? It's insane. And you read mm -hmm. that, and this is this is now, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think actually, when I was at university, it was probably, it was probably better in many ways because at least I was able to go to university. Mm -hmm. That's that time, you didn't have to pay fees. You had to pay your maintenance grant. You know, you got poxy. My maintenance grant was poxy, but, but anyway, the point was after I after I graduated, I went back to um, my hometown 
And it was actually pretty much as though I hadn't done the degree. I may as well not yeah. have done it. Didn't lead yeah, yeah. to anything. Had no value whatsoever. You know? I mean, yeah. and I'm the only person in my family who has a degree. No one, ha- no one's bothered since. No one went before and no one's been since. Because mm-hmm. it doesn't have any value. Without you know? It doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah. It, so it's, it's a waste of time. It's... um. It's it's really interesting. I think that the way you said that sort of um, you would not describe yourself as working class in the way that it is working class is typically presented, which I think yes. is a sort of a sort of a particular bugbear of mine is the sort of it's almost like the the authorized vision of the working class. So it's right. which which again is authorized by the you know the middle class and upper class gatekeepers that often operate in uh, in certain sectors of for example the publishing industry and so we have this sort of this sense of like if you're not from you know Birmingham or further north if you know you're not part of a mining community if you know your family uh, is not beset by social problems and doesn't live in a council house then you don't you don't tick the boxes of being a sort of the acceptable face of the working class to the um yeah to 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 the people who decide which books are going to get published and which books are going to get out there Mm. so one of the things i found found so particularly refreshing about checkout 19 was this was sort of a presentation of um again what in my family we used to jokingly call the kind of the upper working class this kind of you know it's (laughs) with with a certain drive that was a real term for a while (laughs) (laughs) with a kind of dry irony you know but like It's that that sense of the sort of the, as you say, the sort of the, the the working class come from families who don't have university education, who maybe left school at sixteen, got jobs or apprenticeships, and then their kids have been brought up with this idea of of aspiration, getting on in life. They do all the things they're told they're supposed to do. That they, they tick all the boxes they're supposed to tick, and yet, as you say, then you end up back in the hometown, without the you know the fabled doors opening for you as you um as you had been kind of promised by the Mm. by Mm. the life as it was set out Mm. for you Mm. yeah and I I, you know another aspect of that as well is that then I think um there is maybe that expectation if you if you are a writer from a working class background you are going to write about um working class um life Mm-hmm. Um, and in a very realist sort of way, um, this sort of gritty kind of realism and stuff, which um, I, I don't write like mm-hmm. that. Um, but there is, I think, very much an assumption that that's what um, that's what a write, working class writer kind of does, and that's and that's their 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 world, and somehow they 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 can't extend beyond that or something Mm -hmm. i don't i don't know um and that's why i found you know a writer like anne quinn Mm -hmm. uh, the 1960s writer anne quinn uh just so powerful and interesting and inspiring um she was from a working class background she's brought up by a mum i don't know what her dad was up to i think he was sort of maybe around off and on um yeah she was born in in brighton but always had um just a sense of life as being something really quite 
like almost sort of what's the word cosmic or something mm-hmm. like she wanted a different scale of existence and i and i remember that that feeling and it's probably something a lot of us feels when we when we're younger and then it all gets kind of narrowed down sort of quite kind of quickly mm-hmm. um and then you think oh wow okay and then it's that phrase isn't it keeps coming up when you're going to get on with it uh-huh. when am i going to get on with what you know <laughs> get on with it oh all right god um, so it all gets kind of, yeah, whittled down to this very sort of narrow life path very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and she she wasn't up for that. I know I, I wasn't up for that at all. Um, and it, it is that kind of um, desire to, I suppose, want to kind of remain, I don't know, open and in touch with everything and, you know, like possibility and, and energy and whatever it is, you know, just that. I don't know um and that's what fueled her her imagination and the way she writes so in her work too there's a lot of detail about um working class domestic environments um uh, great kind of just quite strange uh very sort of um what would you call them just very unusual descriptions i suppose um, and then you, which led her to being compared not very uh, in a not very kind of uh, flattering way to the Nouveau, Nouveau Roman writers. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, at the time, she was kind of seen as just being imitative of, of that particular um, genre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was which was, you know, which was which was mean. And 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 again, reveals a sort of a, a, cl- a class sort of blind spot in a way. Mm-hmm. That they they couldn't uh, critics at the time couldn't really see that she was coming from her writing the way that she wrote was coming from an authentic place. Mm-hmm. Um, this fashion fascination with with what objects are and what they stand for. Um, there's that duality I think in in her work. It's got that phenomenological kind of dimension to it. Yeah, but at the same time. It's she knows those sort of um, cliche kind of working class sort of you know the B and Bs and the bars mm-hmm. and there's just the stuff the stuff they that they they always have um, anyway I'm rambling a bit um, but yeah so I just love that she that she, but then she goes beyond she goes beyond that mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm not quite sure how she does it actually yeah. I think it's very telling that she it's only really in the last few years that sort of she's getting anything like the recognition that she, that her talent deserved like it's only and that and that that again only because of the the sort of the the dedication and the kind of persistence of a few yeah a few right. people and uh, and you know at a few one or two publishing houses yeah. like it's sort of it's almost like yeah you said you said the critics at the time didn't know what to do with her and they had that very kind of patronizing sort of oh it's sort of sub nouveau roman kind of approach which i think underlined their inability to um yet yeah, t- to recognize the the originality and the authenticity of mm. what she was doing that as you say it comes from a sort of um a, it comes from a very natural place in her um mm. but that the sort of the the radars of the kind of critical establishment weren't tuned into in some way Mm. But in fact, 
one thing that um, you do throughout Checkout 19 is sort of bring in uh, books and bring in writers. Like I said in the introduction, that it was in many ways a book about books. And that's sort of in a, that's the reading of books and the writing of books. And we'll come on to the, the writing in a bit. But um, it, it's quite... Um, it's quite fun, actually, the range of of authors that you sort of um, that you draw in and that you um, and that you um, I guess show your connection to or show you show how they've kind of shaped you. One of the ones that struck me particularly, um, and I think this in a way very much places us in a sort of a similar sort of generational <laughs> spot, is the the studying of a room with a view mm-hmm. for um, for A level. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know the 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 episode where you sort of get so sort of at first don't know what to make of this book and then get so sort of caught up in it that uh with a few friends you book a kind of a trip to to Florence to try and um to try and sort of channel the <laughs> the forces that are um that are present in this book uh, but it's it's i think it's also it also stood out to me because in a way, it's sort of unlike someone, you know, someone like Quinn. This is maybe uh, a book one might not expect somebody uh, writing from the particular kind of class position that you have been to necessarily connect to. And that there, yet there was something, um, something really powerful and really universal in certain elements of the book that sort mm-hmm. of threaded their way into mm-hmm. your mind and into your personality. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there can be a kind of a tendency, um, maybe, uh, as a working class person, to have sort of quite romantic ideas about literature anyway. Um, um, like, I do I do have a, a, a sort of a... There's a, there's a deep sort of contradiction in me in in many ways because <laughs> I can't st- you know I can't stand systems of of privilege and uh so on but I really enjoy quite you know a good costume drama at the same time uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I mean? no I won't I won't watch the what's that royal one what's it called uh, the crown no I won't watch that that's just poor shit but I do like, you know, and I love that. And I love the clothes and I love, you know, I love a merchant ivory film. <laughs> and then I get really annoyed afterwards and I just think, oh, God, you know, <laughs> and I'm disgusted with myself as well. Um, but it is that, it is that kind of, it has that romantic idea and even, even writing and being a writer is sort of fulfilling something that seems just very romantic in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it and it is. I, I can't pretend that I'm really changing the world. Um, there is, I think, there is something sort of intrinsically romantic about it, um, you know. Um, but it it and at that age as well. I mean, she's reading what Sydney Sheldon and mm-hmm. um, Jackie. So it's all kind of. I just don't think I just don't think that at that at that stage um, class discrepancies and and 
discriminations were obviously forefront in her mind. Mm-hmm. She's looking uh, more than anything to um, understand or feel out or inhabit these very strong emotions mm-hmm. that are going on. Um, and literature is, of course, one of the ways um, by which we can do that. Um, mm. So that's and that's just something that that Forster just achieved so so well with that particular book. Um, so I mean, it, it's so beautiful, really, mm-hmm. um, and very funny. It is. I've reread it recently. It's actually very funny as well, um, and. And again, it, it hints at this uh, different scale of of living. Mm-hmm. You know, it's beauty and love and courage all capitalized. You know, mm. it's always so exciting and thrilling, isn't it? When you read a book and you see those, well, it, well now it just looks kind of cranky and weird, but years ago, it just, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it was like this this absolute kind of, you know, the, the platonic idea of, of um of these qualities or forces mm. you know um so yeah she's very much taken up with this idea then of taking herself out of out of uh wiltshire swindon wiltshire and, going <laughs> to Florence. and then of course they they meet a guy from just down the road <laughs> um yeah but i think there's one thing um I mean, obviously, Room with a View and Check Out 19 are very, very vastly different books. And yet I think there's one thing that they have in common is, and this connects to what you were just saying, is kind of sincerity, I think. Like when you read Forster now, and particularly, I think, Room with a View, there's something, I think, yeah, very, very charming about the the seriousness and the sincerity with which he approaches life and approaches thoughts and approaches certain concepts and that struck me also with with checkout 19 like there was sort of um it felt like not that it's a particularly sort of uh, revealing book but there's still it felt like it was coming from a place of sort of of utter sincerity um which i think is quite a quite a difficult thing to sustain actually um, and, you know, often books will kind of lapse into sincerity for for a short while and then sort of, you know, they're, and they're often the sort of the, the chapters or the paragraphs or even just the sentences which really which really leap out. But I think this sort of, yeah, this sort of sustained sincerity throughout an entire two, three hundred page book is very rare. And it struck me, I wonder if as a writer it's kind of quite, quite exhausting in a way. No, I didn't. I didn't find it exhausting um, at all. I found it quite energizing. Hmm. Um, I think sometimes you can be maybe a bit fearful of of that. Maybe particularly in recent years, I think there's been a, a sort of quite an ironic um, stance, perhaps, hmm. um, maybe a, a kind of a not a fear, but maybe a, I don't know, sort of a reluctance maybe to come across as 
sincere. I don't know, even the word, it seems so, in a way, gauche or something. I don't know, mm. weirdly. Um, but I think what was going on with it, um, I just... I just kind of wrote whatever seemed to... I just wrote what mattered. Mm-hmm. To me, mm-hmm. um, and that was kind of <laughs> that was kind of a, a bit of a revelation. So in that mm-hmm. sense, yeah, it was quite energizing and yeah. um, and quite um, yeah, and 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 feeling experiencing that um, that willingness and that open openness to do that was. Uh, was really quite exciting in some way. So I just, I went with it and things were kind of coming up and things were coming into it. And, you know, I didn't have a plan for it or anything like that. And I didn't really know why I was writing the certain things I was writing. I didn't know what the function was of them or whether they related to some, you know, another piece of it or anything like that. I wasn't really that worried, mm-hmm. uh, particularly about, about that kind of thing. Um, because I kind of trust that maybe there's a reason why something mm-hmm. will, will come up um, and it will come, you know, it will just become apparent to me uh, when I'm a good bit into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I just felt, yeah, I just felt like sticking to things that seem to me to, to yeah, kind of matter. Mm. Really. I think um, that idea of sort of, uh things coming together is is really apparent in the book like it's 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 odd because it's sort of it in in certain ways it it feels like quite a sort of a disparate collection of uh memories or events or thoughts and yet as you make your way through the book you do feel it kind of hanging together and yet and i've read it three times now and like the thing i still can't quite identify what that thing is it's almost it's almost like it's not one thing but a kind of a series of sort of interdependencies between the the different episodes and the different Mm. I don't like the word themes but you know whether it be sort of class or writing or womanhood or things like that that sort of they they work in sort of equilibrium with each other it's not sort of like each section has uh, one particular thread which all get tied together at the end but there's something yeah there's this kind of this this sort of overall equilibrium um, at work yeah I mean so with that I um, I think I kind of create a sort of a maybe connective tissue or something mm. in a very on a very intricate kind of level I love I love when I've pretty much uh, got all the, the pieces sort of together, and I know what's going to be there. Um, and then I need to kind of, yeah, just w- work out how they're going to kind of s- sit with each other. That's that's the part. Then mm. it's almost sort of like sculpting or something. That's the part mm. I really really um, enjoy. Um, 
was the helicopter. It's a bit loud. <laughs> you'll, you'll have that by the sea. Um, and I mean, one of the things that I, I really love then is I, I feel like I kind of go in then. I go into it with a with a little kind of toolkit. Mm-hmm. And it's like it is like engineering or something. And there'll be there'll be there'll be real kind of small motifs or just sort of qualities or that I can kind of really bring out and, and create kind of links with or riff on or echoes or like the idea of hot and cold, that mm-hmm. hot and cold kind of run throughout it mm. and references to it in various different ways. So I think if you're working kind of on that level, it's almost like you're kind of underground. You're in the, you know, you're in the basement kind mm-hmm. of tinkering with the the foundations and the pipe work and the, um, then that's, that's going to give the, oh, what's above it overall, a sense of, of cohesiveness. Yeah. Yeah, Do you know yeah. what you mean? Yeah, no, very much so. And I think one of the um, areas where that kind of uh, comes across, I guess, in the most kind of one of the most satisfying ways, perhaps because the the section itself feels to begin with so utterly unlike um, other sections in the book is now you're going to have to let us know the pronunciation of this because there's been some debate about whether it's Tarquin Superbus or Tarquin Superbus? What a... <laughs> Superbus. <laughs> Superbus. That's quite funny. I say Tarquin Superbus. Okay, good, good, good. Okay, I feel vindicated. What do you, what do you say? Superbus, obviously. Superbus. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. Um, so, I mean, it's it's sort of... I, I, I'm not sure necessarily we would have the time to go, to go into the... Um, the the full, de- you know, the full uh, exp- explanation of this 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 section... Um, but and I just recommend that our listeners go go ahead and read it. But this is essentially a as a writer, you're revisiting a story that was written many years previously. Um, and without giving too much away, let's say without any direct access to the original story. Right. And I think there was something there was something really fascinating about that as a reader, actually, just sort of seeing what a writer maybe I guess sort of 20 or so years down the line would make of a story that they sort of remembered or half remembered from the uh, sort of an earlier stage in their in their Mm. life as a writer Mm. Mm. um yeah that was funny that section because I had envisaged that maybe uh being maybe a couple of paragraphs long or something Mm -hmm. again I wasn't really sure what I was doing when I when I embarked upon that particular piece um that did just start with yeah many years ago I, I wrote a story about um uh, yeah, a kind of an aristocratic. No, he's not aristocratic, I don't think. Not he might have notions towards that, but mm-hmm. anyway, he's a very wealthy man. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know. It was supposed to be. It was only supposed to be a couple of paragraphs, anyway. <laughs> oh, that's what I thought. I thought I don't know what I'm writing about this. This isn't going to really get me anywhere. And then, and then, yeah, it just it it kind of. 
it just came yeah well then yeah this idea of come you know come to life I was sort of playing with with that idea in a way and that idea of like well how how do you write in that vein you know what I mean so here's here is a character you know people will know from my first book and from previous interviews that I'm not a character or plot oriented sort of writer so this is a kind of a rare thing actually and it's not surprising that I do look back on it and think, God, once upon a time I did write, you know, mm-hmm. a, a, or begin to write at least a story that had a character with a name, a <laughs> name. Um, but it is actually the name of, I think it was, he was the last Roman emperor. There was actually a Tarquin oh. Superbus. And I had completely forgotten that. But after, um, not that long ago, I thought about it. And I thought, where did you get Tarquin Superbus on? That is so weird. <laughs> is that a name? Like, is Superbus a name? And I Googled it and it comes up. And I was like, well, where, how did that come into my brain then? And that's another, you know, that's another bizarre mystery of like how things get into our brain and how they come out again. Mm-hmm. And then you completely forget the origin. Um, and then what happens with that? with that piece is, and you you probably have, did notice it as it went along, was that he kind of shifted character a little bit. His mm. character was a little bit unstable. Like yeah, to begin yeah. with, it, he seemed like just a kind of a, a stereotypical kind of, you know, European 19th century kind of chap. Um, and then he grows a bit more in wonder. But then it's, she changes her mind about, you know, and and it's kind of shifted and unst- unstable, um, mm-hmm. and and I was interested in that because I thought, well, what is it like to spend time with a character? Mm-hmm. You know, you often hear um, authors talking about about it, and I've never really had that um, experience at all. So it was interesting to spend time with 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 that, and I thought, well, probably then what they need to do is do they go back then and change some of the things at the beginning. So that there is this kind of continuity, whereas I, you know, I don't, um, and there are obvious, obvious, and with the doctor as well. I mean, the doctor ends up being completely different almost to how yeah. he starts off, um, and she kind of it's like that. It's like she kind of fancies him in the end, you know. She's, <laughs> she's always created in, into something that's quite attractive, whereas he starts off being almost vampiric. You know, he's like three hundred years old and white, and then the next, you know, towards the end, it's only in a matter of pages. He becomes like he's got this really lovely suit on, and he smells really fragrant. And in my mind, actually, at this stage, I didn't put it in the book, but in my mind, at this stage, he looks a bit like the guy out of the Grand Balitza. I can't remember the name of the guy that he played the actor, but that's how he. So he'd gone from like Nosferatu to like <laughs> this, you know, gorgeous sixty-year-old Italian kind of guy, and it's amazing. And I just think through the process of writing, all that transformation was going yeah. on. So I think that's probably why it'd be absolutely useless to write a conventional novel <laughs> because it'd just be changing the whole time in my head. And then maybe in you the put your finger story, on something. Uh, I was going to say, maybe you put your finger on something about why sort of a lot of books seem to be kind of populated with kind of unnaturally beautiful characters. It's because, you know, you said about writers spending time with their characters. It's like, yeah. you know, you, you start off as Nosferatu. It's kind of, ah, yeah, I don't want to spend time with this guy. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> yeah. Like a 60-year-old Italian dandy. That's but, Yeah, maybe. Um, and then I, yeah, ended up, and then he goes off, doesn't she? And she's like, oh, adieu, doctor, adieu. I could have listened to you all night long. You know, <laughs> I got a crush on my own creation at this stage. 
it's like it's pretty far up and then of course in that story as well the original story there was no female character Mm -hmm. and then in the retelling of it one creeps in Mm -hmm. but first of all i think she's referred to as a housekeeper and then a maid and then it's all the same person, but, you know, it's just, oh, there's another thing there. You know what I mean? And it's not defined or, or particularly designated yet. And then as it goes on, she acquires a name all of a sudden. She's mm-hmm. Ro- uh, Rosie, Rosalia. Um, and I was very interested in that, too, because then I thought, well, sh- should I have gone back and changed all the, you know, uh vague kind of references to her and made them more made them more but I you know I didn't because I just I was interested in showing I suppose how a story develops Mm -hmm. in the imagination yeah and how it it grows and and shifts and so I wanted I wanted to keep I wanted to keep that in really yeah 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 and I think that that brings us on to um I think probably the last thing um we're gonna really have time to talk about um but is the sort of the um I look a lot of times during this this conversation I've mentioned things that sort of that really chimed with me, that really resonated, that I could very much identify with. But of course there's one strain um of the book which in you know, for relatively obvious reasons was sort of quite alien to me, uh, was that sort of the the experience of of womanhood and the experience of being uh being, you know, a, a teenage girl, the experience of being of becoming a woman, of being a a woman who writes as well and the kind of reaction that sometimes provokes in uh in certain men particularly men with whom you may be in a in a relationship with for example um and coming back to sort of the first moment where i remember coming in and having having read the book and talking about it with a few of my colleagues who um who had also read it and all, all of them just happened to be women and one of the things that they all immediately identified was the the frankness and the accuracy with which you uh, talk about having your period at school and the sort of the description particularly of the kind of the period blood and the and the color of it and how um, I can't remember the exact quote but how like the color was so perfect that you wanted to take it into a makeup counter and uh, and ask for this um, this uh, this particular shade and it was it was fascinating to me. To see, you know, I read that as a sort of a, an interested and entertained man, like male reader, and it was really interesting for me to hear from my from my colleagues how those sections felt so refreshing and so sort of um, yeah, so sort of new. I get to have this kind of not so much the frankness, I guess, but the kind of the the accuracy and the sort of the idiosyncrasy with which these um, these experiences were were represented mm-hmm. well i'm i'm very i'm very pleased to hear that um i think what was going i what was going on there i realized i didn't ask you a question so my no, question could be what was going on there <laughs> no you didn't it's just it said some nice things to me um <laughs> well what was going on there well i was thinking about the fact that i won't i won't have i won't go on having periods like forever obviously and um I quite like them for some reason I quite I don't know I do quite like them um and what happened was I think yeah for you for years and years I used tampons and then I didn't want to use them anymore and that was quite funny because
because I thought, when did I ever really decide to use tampons? I can't really remember. Like, you just sort of did it, and that was that. Um, and I, I guess I got curious then because it seems like such an important decision, such an intimate decision in a way about how you how you're treating your body or and what you're putting into your body and how you're thinking about what's happening with your body like month after month year after year and it's like trying to minimize this occurrence and make it invisible um and I wanted I wanted I guess I wanted the visibility of it in a way Mm -hmm. I wanted to experience it I wanted it to be more apparent that I was having my period you know and there's just always this thing and I remember I'm sure, I'm sure many people um, of, of our age remember, you know, those adverts for like body form and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like this idea that you, you, your life doesn't have to stop and you can carry on like playing frisbee and riding horses. But maybe you just don't want to. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> maybe you just don't flippin' feel like it. Um, and there's just this thing of everything carrying on as, as normal and it not being anything like it didn't have to register in any way or change. And actually that's a real shame because your menstrual cycle is really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you kind of tune into it, um, it, it can be really helpful to tune into it big time. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're pretending it's not there. And if you think it's going to disappear just by putting a tampon in, like that's just dumb. That's just not how it works. <laughs> So, you know, it's all going to still go on, you know, all the hormones, all the rest of it. You know, that's not going to stop just because you can't see the blood anymore. Um, It's a very weird way of treating it and thinking about it. Um, So, yeah, I guess I guess once it started to become sort of more visible and I started to kind of like get into it and be like, oh, wow, I bled a lot these last few hours or oh, I haven't really bled that much. What's going on or whatever it might be. Or look at the color and, you know, the colors changing and all kinds of stuff. Um, it's just, yeah, you just think, God, this is a really important part of our experience. And so, yeah, I don't go in, I, you know, I didn't want to make a big thing out of it or anything particularly. I just, I just, I, but I do remember leaking at school and, um, and that's another part of, I guess, being (laughs) a female, um, Uh too. But I think that's a very important point there, which is like, yeah, you didn't want to make a big thing of it, but you know, just it, 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 it sort of you needed to, or you wanted to, to represent it nonetheless. And I think that's a sort of something which feels very sort of um, indicative of checkout nineteen generally. Mm. Actually, it's mm. like it's, and there are certain um, sort of incidents which, uh, let's say, other writers might make a bigger deal of in the mm. in the context of the book but i think there's something very um in a way maybe it comes back to the sincerity again and this kind of this kind of honesty that this is sort of uh things are often sort of presented they're not necessarily sort of centralized in a narrative mm-hmm. but they're given the sort of they're given voice to in a um in a way that it sort of i guess at a degree which is kind of which is kind of uncommon. It's almost like you're given you're given two choices, which is the kind of I guess the body form choice, which is not to talk about it at all, or making it the sort of the mm-hmm. the central, you know, uh, underlying sort of thrust of the narrative. Yeah. 
Mm. Whereas one thing I think Checkout 19, you do very well with Checkout 19, is to have this sort of, I don't know, it feels like a sort of a very sort of well-balanced, very kind of, yeah, things presented maybe at the level of which you experience them in your life, I guess. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's good, actually. Yeah, I can't put it better, actually, than that. It is at the level that you experience them. And that's how, yeah, I want it to appear on the page, really. No no more and no less. And it, is, it, it can be tricky, try, actually trying to find, a, you know, a way a way of doing that and a, a, of including um, those parts of, of experience. Um, but, yeah, I like that. I'm going to remember that. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you. And, uh, <laughs> I, feel, I feel bad about uh, leaving this interview on uh, you giving me a compliment. So I will just... <laughs> I will just say that um, if it hasn't come across, I'm sure it has to our listeners, but just what a remarkable achievement um, I think Checkout 19 is. I think it's, um, as I said in the introduction, quite unlike anything um, anything I've ever, I'd ever, I've ever read before. And I would, uh, yeah, I'd, pr- I'd press it on all of our listeners um, to get hold of a copy, uh, which luckily they can do uh, from the Shakespeare and Company uh, online shop, in-store, obviously, or in uh your neighborhood independent bookstore wherever wherever that may be um and i guess all that remains for me to say claire louise is adieu i could have listened to you all night (laughs) brilliant (laughs) cheers thank you thanks for listening to the shakespeare and company podcast with me adam biles since you've made it this far, I hope that means you've enjoyed what you've heard and will consider rating us in whatever app you're using. The theme music is Mr Ginger by the incredible jazz musician Alex Fryman, taken from his album Play It Gentle. I'll be back next week. Until then, take care, happy reading, and thanks again for listening.